I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Julia Samuel. She's a psychotherapist and an author specializing in grief. Let's talk about it. All right, we are here with our new friend, Julia Samuel, and uh, I, I, we're going to be talking about my favorite topic that we ever talk about on the show, which is the topic of grief, grief and death and change, all the things that somehow almost every episode somehow mm-hmm. manages to like weasel its way into our show. It is and, the through um, line in, in, on it support. is, it really is. Um, and, uh, and, uh, I, I, I think I should say it's 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 one thing to talk about it amongst ourselves, the three of us, a couple of you know, a few dum dums who don't know a whole lot about much. Uh, but then to sit down with someone like Julia, who is a psychotherapist and an author who specializes in the world of grief, uh, what a treat! So Julia, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's very nice to be on your show. All 334 of your episodes connect in some way with grief and loss. I mean, inside, I, maybe, that might be all, every single one might be a bit of a stretch, but, but fuck, I tell you, like, it's, it's pretty common. Like, it comes up quite a bit. I mean, I, well, let, let's put it this way. Maybe not, um, maybe not death, but I would say grief for sure comes up in every single episode. And especially when you're looking at grief from the from the viewpoint of maybe not grief of <clears throat> uh, the loss of somebody that you knew, but definitely the grief of the life that you Wanted. had once known. You I know? mean, I in in my new book, this too shall pass. I call that a living loss. So it's a health diagnosis. It's not getting the job or losing your job or breaking up of a relationship. And I would, I would say that there isn't a therapy session on the planet ever that in some way doesn't include loss, a living loss mm. or a loss from grief, because that is the distress that most of us are dealing with on a daily basis. We didn't have the relationship we wanted. We don't have the life we wanted. We, you know, that's, and there are days people are, are very happy and they have all they want and then, you know, Life is both loss and um, joy, isn't it? The two are completely mm. interconnected, and you can't really yeah. have one without the other. It's like day and mm. night; they're side by I was, side. I was, uh, I was actually, I'm, I'm glad that you just said that last little piece because it was, it was this question popped up in my head, and immediately my my um, like producer voice said, "Ask that in." in 25 or 30 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and now that you've said that, I'll, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Um, is, is grief ultimately in your experience, not for everybody, but, but, but 
for a good chunk of people maybe. Um, is grief sowing the seeds for for a um, a revelation of sorts or or the or future um, joy or a transformation that you are able to maybe it's not joy or happiness necessarily, but something that sows the seeds for fruit to bear fruit in some capacity because when I think of when I think of my life and all of the really really challenging things that I've gone through, it is those times of like really really deep um, confusion and uh, maybe <coughs> despair and not knowing what comes next and you know how am I going to transition how am I going to make something of this that ends up leading to the next thing in life that I am able to build on and and grow from. Uh, what's your what's your take on that and your experience in your work? I mean, we could do the whole session on this, couldn't we? I mean, what people talk about is post-traumatic growth, that the loss, whatever it is, whether it's a health diagnosis or loss from death or, or a trauma event or all the living losses from COVID, what people say is that the, the, the loss is never diminished by the growth, so that you have to allow yourself to feel the pain of the loss. And I talk about pain being the agent of change, that by allowing yourself to recognize this new reality that you didn't want and you didn't choose, but allowing the pain to be the agent of change that forces you to adapt and adjust and accommodate this new place you find yourself in, that then frees you to find yourself in your new place, and that can feel like growth, where your perception of what matters, where your recognition of your capacity to uh, be stronger or more resilient than you expected, where you value things before that you hadn't valued. And the other big thing is the things that you do to block the pain are normally the things that do you harm long term. Mm. So that if you're kind of pushing against whatever it is that's happened to you, and often we do that with busyness or sex or drugs or alcohol, you know, with smartphones, with scrolling, with gaming, all that stuff. When you block your natural adaptive organismic self to change, then you kind of shrink as a person. So it's the opposite mm. of what you're saying. So you're, you function fine, you breathe in and out, but your capacity to feed is foreshortened. So if you have joy one end and pain the other end, if you block your pain, you incrementally also block your capacity to feel joy. So you mm. live in a very narrow emotional bandwidth, whereas if you let yourself feel the pain, then you can really expand. And you know mm -hmm. those people who have really lived their life and they've gone through it and you see it in them, you feel like they're rich in all yeah. sorts of ways. Whereas those who kind of are brittle and angry and kind of pissed off with what's happened, it feels like when you meet them, they can't meet you. There's a kind of mm. scream that, that comes between you. And then, of course, that makes their life more miserable because the thing, this is the longest answer, by the way. I'm really sorry. This is the, no, this go great, on. You need to great, go on for yeah. days. This is yeah. like, I'm learning more about the human condition in the last two minutes than I've yeah. ever learned. I mean, where, where does that come from, though? Like, is that, is that, is is that as simple as just uh, it, us trying to protect ourselves like like i feel like i feel like we all know that change is inevitable and i feel like i feel like most of us deep down know that like creating space for 
uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I, I, I'm speaking on behalf of everyone when I should be just speaking for myself, but like, I'll speak for myself. I know that when I create space for pain or discomfort, that it, it will benefit me in the long run. But boy, is it ever fucking hard to do that. <laughs> like, and mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. And, I, and, and even though I know, I know in my heart of hearts that that is the way to go, I don't want to do it. Why? Is it because I'm just trying to protect myself? I mean, I think you speak for everybody. You know, I want to change, but I don't want to have to change. And also, I don't, hard. it's too hard and it feels so shit. And, and also, yeah. I don't want to feel pain. Why the fuck should I? Mm. But when yeah, you're mm-hmm. happy and everything is rolling along well, you don't need to change because you're in tune with your body. So when you're waking up like, Brian does very chirpy at half past six, ready to kind of really go for his day. (laughs) And everything's singing and he hasn't turned over and gone back to sleep. He he, then he there's no need to change because it's all in sync. You're meeting people, you're getting Mm. what you need done and you kind of feel like you're having a good day. But the signals of change are at one end discomfort, like, oh, at the other end with kind of someone dying or a big loss is real pain. And that's when you're forced to recognize that they've died and they're not coming back anymore. And you have to live with that new reality. You have to accommodate the reality. You have to kind of find a way of knowing that the love for them never dies, how to continue the relationship and the love with them through memory and touchstones to memory whilst letting yourself feel the pain of their physical presence, that you'll never hug them again, you'll never see them again, you'll never hear their voice again. Mm. And so those are, those are difficult things to nego- negotiate. And the other thing, to answer your question, Jeremy, is that it takes much longer than most of us want. Right. So the level of the loss equals the level of the pain. So if it's a small thing, you know, that isn't a big deal, you can adapt very quickly. Mm. But if it's a very big thing... We expect, particularly in the 21st century with smartphones, we expect our being to be as efficient as kind of fast track app. Like people, you know, why books that succeed that say the five steps to the new you or the 10 ways to be a winner is because we want those 10 ways. But they're bullshit. They may have some good ideas. I'm not really saying that ideas are wrong, but the, the, the organismic process in the human being it takes time. You can't just mm-hmm. yeah. switch it and say, I'm going to have this new way of thinking. It means I'm going to have this new behavior and I'll be a new me. It takes longer than that. It takes time yeah. for us to catch up. I find change, though, feels overwhelming. And I'm speaking personally now as well, but I feel change feels overwhelming because on your own, it seems like an impossible feat to understand what the process is because it's like not very tangible and like you don't, you know, unless you've studied it and understand it, which I think most of us haven't, then it, it feels so confusing, I think. And maybe that's just one of the steps of, of grief. But, you know, I, I started, see, I, our listeners are probably getting tired of hearing this and, and definitely Taylor is, but I, I've He's started seeing friend, a therapist. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I started seeing a therapist this year. And, um, I went with the, um, 
I went under the understanding that it's important to take a proactive approach to your mental health. And I didn't have any idea of what type of trauma I might be exploring or what I might be looking into or the reasons why I do things or, you know, why I am me. And so through the first few conversations with my therapist, I started to realize like, oh, there are, you know, there are behaviors that I exhibit that are because of things that have happened to me in my past that I wouldn't categorically define as trauma, but like they certainly influence my personality and the way that I, you know, react to this world. Um, and, and (laughs) going to therapy has started to like kind of help me identify these things, which then starts to make them feel more tangible. But I also feel like, you know, this is a somewhat rare experience in society today where we actually are able to, you know, one, have the money to afford to go see a therapist and, you know, two, are are, uh, are at a point where we feel comfortable in going and unpacking some of that stuff that it lives in our past because, you know, I, for one, acknowledge that it's it's a pretty privileged perspective for me to think, oh, well, I can just go walk willy-nilly through my you know, through my thoughts, because I'm not afraid of bumping into any, you know, trauma I know, um, serious trauma that I know lives, lives there. But I guess this is a really roundabout way of, of, of getting to the point of like, how do we make this overwhelming feeling of, of, of trying to understand grief and start to like navigate it in a way that feels, I guess I'm, it feels like I'm trying to make it not feel as bad to go through it, but you know, I think I know, that's Brian. part of it. I have the answer the right here, Brian. <laughs> read read <laughs> Julia's this too book. shall pass. It's a book by Julia Samuel yes. that actually just recently came out. It has all the answers. <laughs> it does. Ten steps. Well, Julia, <laughs> break it down. <laughs> but how do we make it feel less overwhelming? I guess. I have so. I mean, I think what you're saying is is incredibly true. And I think one of the difficulties is that it's invisible. Mm. Like the thing has happened, someone has died or, you know, been given a health diagnosis or most of the things you can't see, but what you feel is is inside you. So what, one of the metaphors often for grief, um, for living losses or, or grief from death, is that it's an iceberg, and the third you see on top is what we sort of physically show and see in people's bodies and their and their faces, but below the waterline, two thirds is 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 what we feel and experience, and that we emotions are contagious, so that we trigger each other. So if you're feeling very sad and distressed and upset, and you're with somebody else, you will send an alarm signal into their body. And what often happens in relationships is that they both kind of crash into each other because nobody knows what's going on. So, I mean, you know this because I heard you say it in your other podcast, awareness is your first step. It's like slowing down, take a breath, and just turn your attention internally and kind of be able to name what you're aware of. Is there a tightness in your chest? Are you clenching your teeth? What are the thoughts that are going on in your head? Are you having a kind of shitty committee that's in your head that's sort of (laughs) wheeling negative attacks? Are you obsessing with something? Are you clenching your jaw? I mean, you guys know all of this because you Mm. do yoga. So, I mean, you must be pretty in tune with what's going on with all of you. 
Mm-hmm. It's very. I I I, I want to just come back to something you you just said um, about like your you sort of project your feelings onto the people. You don't project you. them uh, intentionally. It, okay. But yeah. The, the the reason why I want to ask about that is because um, in in my head, so I have a I have a really good friend who lives with um, complex PTSD, and um, he's come to me a few times when he's been in a pretty dark place and hasn't been feeling well. And sort of after we have this conversation, he'll um, say to me, "You know, I feel really bad that I put that on you. I feel really bad that you know I've I've." forced you have to sort of like shoulder some of that weight of the situation that I'm dealing with. And when I think about it, even, you know, my response to him is like, of course you're not doing that. I, I want to be here for you. I want to support you. Um, and of course it feels shitty for me in a sense to know that he's going through that. But I also feel like it's really rewarding that I have this like level of trust with another human being where he feels comfortable opening up to me about something. And it, and it doesn't feel good knowing that he's going to it, but it, it sort of brings this sort of positive feeling into me where I feel good that I can support him. I guess, is there a way for us to not sort of take that emotional, um, I don't want to use the word baggage, but emotional baggage for lack of a better word that somebody's carrying and, and, and feed off of it to help support them better without it taking a toll on you as well? I mean, there's lots of things to respond to. So, I, I mean, all the research shows that love is strong medicine. So the thing that when we look back at our lives, what matters to us most is our love and connection to others. So when two people, whether they're good friends or partners or members of a family, can be open and honest with each other and trust each other with their kind of deepest aspects of themselves, that builds bonds in the relationship that physiologically gives you oxytocin, which is very good for your immune system. So an altruism, helping others, helps you, and that's good for your immune system. So those relationships, that's why I'm so well, is because I do it as my job, is by having meaningful, close relationships with people and also feeling that you make a difference is very good for you in, on every level. But also, you have to support yourself in it. So you have to be responsible to the third person and not for them. Like, recognise that it's mm. not for you to step in and fix his PTSD. Mm. And you have to have ways of stabilising and um, managing your own stuff. Mm. And also, you don't want to be codependent. So you don't want the kind of relationship where you're feeding off each other through each other's um, distresses. Right. I'm hoping he has EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is the best treatment for trauma. I hope that's what he's getting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure about that, but but uh, I'll definitely. I'm not going to try to fix him. No. <laughs> that's probably <laughs> but a good I'll, idea, but I'll mention it. <laughs> I, I wanted to go. I wanted to. You, you mentioned. Um, you know, right before Brian asked that last question, you mentioned kind of sitting with your sitting with yourself, recognizing how you feel, how you're holding yourself, like kind of the physical manifestations of, of your thought processes, how you're clenching your jaw, those things. And, and the, the helpfulness uh, uh, that, comes with, that comes with a practice like yoga. And I'm wondering, um, in your experience, 
what sort of role do you, what sort of role or importance do you place on not, not specifically yoga, but like any, any sort of mindfulness practice that allows you to be, um, to sort of, I mean, in yoga, it's, it's, it's separating the sub, the object from the subject and, and, and seeing yourself objectively rather than being, um, uh, being in it. Um, yeah, because well, because when you were talking before, I was I, I was I'm thinking of myself, and I'm thinking there are times where I'm going through a transformation, some sort of transformation, a change in life, whatever it might be, and there's inevitably a point in that transformation where I'm in the tunnel and I can't see light at either end, and at that, it's, it's at that point where I'm not actually aware at all that I'm there, um, and it's not really until I'm closer to the end of the tunnel that I'm actually able to realize it. Um, but I do feel like the mindfulness aspect of it helps me when I'm in that darkest, when I'm in that darkest place. Um, yeah. What sort of, what sort of importance does, 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 does having a foundation of mindfulness play in being able to navigate grief and loss and, um, these challenges of life, um, better? Huge. I mean, what we know now is the mind and the body are completely interconnected. So every thought that you have has a physiological expression and every physical expression you have triggers a thought. So we used to have the Descartes idea of mind and body and that they were two separate entities. And now we know that they're networks, neural networks, that are completely interconnected and inextricably linked and affect each other. So that people talk about it, and you'll know this from Bessel van der Kolk and all, all sorts of people, that the body remembers, the body holds the school. And in grief, for instance, it's a very embodied experience. People always talk about, I feel it in my chest, or I feel mm-hmm. it in my stomach. Mm. Um, or men actually often rub their legs, they often want to run. Mm. And so I, when I'm working with people, I often use the body to connect with what they can't find words for. So I get them to do a kind of mindful, focusing um, visualization, which then puts them in touch with things that are too, they can't kind of get at um, cognitively. But also, you know, one of the things that we know about happiness in life, as well as relationships, is being able to manage our emotions. You know, that we go, our, our autonomic nervous system goes up in response to a demand and then winds down. But in the 21st century lifestyle, our autonomic nervous system ramps up in response to a demand, and then the, auto, the um, sympathetic <coughs> nervous system ramps up too, so people are in a very heightened state. And when people are grieving, it feels like fear. So they're on kind of fourth gear, it's, they're in a very heightened state. So one of the ways to manage that extreme pain of it and the kind of thoughts that come pinging with that is exercise and mindfulness. So if I was going to say to somebody, do one thing, it wouldn't be necessarily to see a therapist. It would be to take your body outside, go outside, move your body, shift your body, and then do just even a five-minute breathing exercise. Mm. Because once you've lowered the gear to a kind of more manageable gear, then you have the capacity, because when you're very heightened, like that guy you were talking to in the last episode, he couldn't take, when you're very frightened, you can't connect with anyone because your system is on looking for danger. Am I going to kill somebody or am I going to run or should I freeze? So you don't connect. And the single biggest thing 
that we need when we're when someone dies or we have a, a, a huge suffering is the love and connection to others. That is the predictor of outcomes. Mm. Whereas, but if you're kind of on alert the whole time, you can't connect to other people. You know that feeling like you just don't see them and they kind of annoy <coughs> you. You kind of avoid them. So yeah, I tell people to do yoga all the time. It's crazy how, how, uh, how, differently you think for the rest of your day when exercise i think and it's and specifically sort of like medium intensity exercise in the morning like i i've been on a bit of a, i've been on a training program lately and it's all endurance like long hours but like fairly low intensity stuff and i've been and because it's longer hours i'm trying i'm where i used to work out more in the afternoon or in at night now I'm going, well, I need to get up earlier and do that in the morning because that's where the time is. And I've noticed such a change in how I feel throughout the day. It's like wow. I am just like, I am just ready and It like gets rid of a lot of shit. It gets... Oh, it's, it's wild. Like I'm, I'm blown away by, by the effect of it. And in particular, like lower to medium intensity exercise is just, I mean, it is a, it's a magic... But but similar to... It's your to, best medicine. I mean, the, the, the yeah. research is completely incontrovertible. Our NICE guidelines, which is like our clinical excellence, the thing that you, you can't get sort of government, you can't get the NHS funding unless it's NICE guidelines, guidelines agreed. They say regular exercise is the equivalent to a low dose mm. of antidepressants. But it's, right. a, it's similar to what you said before. I've never heard that before. In, That's pretty wild. In, the, yeah. in like the grief part in, in where... Like, it's hard to. It's hard to start. Like, if you don't Dude. have, if it's not, if the foundation for it isn't there, it's but very even hard when the to foundation's start. there. Like, because because I was thinking, you know, the last thing I had talked to my therapist about, I'm bringing up therapy again. But but uh, <laughs> I'm was, sorry, Brian, well, that I've made you so aware of bringing up therapy. I apologize. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. I mean, uh, I'll if talk you're not going to talk about therapy to a blooming therapist, who the hell are you going to talk about? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But uh, it, it's funny because the last thing I spoke to my therapist about was like this lack of motivation around exercising, even though I know how profoundly it, helpful it is to my mental health. And I've been, I've gone through phases where, you know, I've sort of like seen myself as like an athlete where I'm working out at high intensities every day and I feel really good and like I'm eating better because I worked out. So I want to, you know, I don't want to waste it. So I, I make sure that my nutrition is there and then I'm going to bed early because I'm tired from the workout and I'm sleeping better because I spent my energy all day. And and anyway, like I, I know that when I'm in that state, I feel really great. But coming into the new year this year, I just didn't have the motivation to start. And it's not that like I could go and I'm not the fittest I've ever been right now or anything, but I could go for a run and it's not it's not the challenge of doing the exercise that is preventing me from doing it right now. It's just as like general lack of motivation for doing it. And so like I, I I just don't know where like where does where does that come from? And I, I don't know. Am I am I getting too I much think, into like a, a therapy session for myself right now? Or? I, I think it's a number of things. I think one is the minute you say to yourself, "I have to do something" or "I should do something," it makes you like a teacher is telling you to do something and you don't want to do it, so you kind of resist it. So one of the things is to befriend it. 
and treat it as your ally rather than as something that is a must. And the other thing, all the work of B.J. Fogg, do you know B.J. Fogg? This thing of tiny habits. So what he talks about is that motivation is a very thin um, system to hope to develop new habits. And that emotion is what keeps us going in uh, behaviours, not um, motivation. So what he says is the mastery of tiny habits. So you just get yourself outside for five minutes and that's mm. what you commit to. And you do that every day and you feel so pleased with yourself because you've done what you've set yourself because it is so achievable. And it's that feeling of satisfaction and self-esteem that grows that then you end up going out for, for longer and you yeah. build to build on the tiny habits. But it's the, it's the emotion of well-being that you go. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I want to shift gears a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> there was, when we earlier we were talking about. Um, you know, when we were talking about things like grief and, and you, you said uh, post-traumatic growth, which is the first time I've ever heard that term. And yeah, and I, I just, there's, in something you were saying, it was making me think about who are the people in my life that have really, um, who are the teachers in my life? Like the people that have taught me a lot about what it means to grieve and the people that I look up to in, in terms of the way that they grieve. And I was thinking about my wife, uh, Bridie and you know, she's, she's seen a lot of loss in her life. Um, uh, her sister passed away, uh, last year, her, both her grandmothers and her father passed away. We both lost our dog recently. Um, and every time we or her is going through something like this, I'm always just like in awe when I see the way that she processes and handles and like she's so graceful when it comes to dealing with grief. And so in thinking about her and the way that she's dealt with grief and how she's taught me, it made me wonder about you, Julia. And um, I know that this is your job and that you deal with, you know, patients, um, on, on a regular basis, uh, specializing in grief, but are there, are there any, are there any people in your own personal life that have like, that you look up to or that have kind of like shifted the way that you approach your, your, even to your practice or, or, or before you, you started your practice, like people that have kind of altered the way that you view grief? I mean, uh, in, in some ways, 
the model I got was the reverse. So both of my parents, by the time they were 25, my mum, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. She was an orphan, 25. And my dad, his brother and his oh. father had died. And they were that generation, they sort of, my dad was in the Second World War, brought up by people who survived the First World War, and they were, you know, what you don't talk about doesn't hurt you. Like, don't talk about anything that matters. So just mm -hmm. pretend everything's fine, keep going, stiff up a lip. And that was the biggest influence on me in the sense that I was much more interested in what people weren't saying and trying to read mm what the hell was going on in this mad house I was brought up in <laughs> because nothing was above the waterline. I had no idea <laughs> what was going on. So, and I'm still, that is what interests me most. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm having really fun with you three. I'm really kind of enjoying you understanding yourselves and working out how you understand yourselves. And that I've, I'm forever curious about. Um, the The... The people that have influenced me most, one of them is a, is a theorist who I've never met called Margaret Strawberry. Um, and I use her model of grief all the time to support me. And then there was another theorist called Carl Rogers, who is the sort of person-centered ther therapist. Um, so that neither, there's no one I've met that has been a big mentor for me. Although, you know, there are tons of people at like Brené Brown, Esther Perel, Tons of people out there who I think are amazing. Um, but it's sort of really significant, whether it was the reverse mm. and then... Um, I, I imagine you as... Um, because I was when, earlier when I was asking about this like really intangible idea of like how you deal with these really challenging situations, um, I'm imagining you as like an explorer with the perfect map to like get through all of the you know scary dark forest and out to the other side. But when you actually deal with grief personally in your life is it easier because you feel like you have the tools or is it just is it just yeah, like she just the tools are she's just like <laughs> all right uh, she sits down in one on a chair and then asks herself the question then stands up and goes and lays down on the chaise and answers the answers the chair i mean i obviously know that it's 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 never easy to deal with things like loss but but like are you more like conscientious or more understanding of the, the sort of feelings that you're feeling and therefore it, it's easier for you to navigate them? I don't know if you, Maybe I that's mean, a the, dumb question, but I'm curious. I, the pain, I don't think, is any less. I guess what I, I do take my own medicine. So I don't mm. do all the things I know that make it worse. And so I do the things that support me. I know it's going to take a long time. I know I'm going to feel awful. Um, so in that way, but also... You know, when you talk about, you know, when I work with people, when I build a relationship with a client, I don't really have a map because they're the map. So the, the work mm. I do is to build a relationship where they trust me so they trust themselves and find out what their internal landscape holds, what it's telling us. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an assumption of what it's going to tell us. I have tons of knowledge and experience, 30, over 30 years, so I use that. But really, I do that without saying much, because I think people and, feel it. And, and in that question that you asked there, Brad, like, 
it easier is always easier is a weird word, right? Because <laughs> totally. it's because yeah. it's because we we think of the root of it easy as something's easy, but easier is relative to something, and that something in grief is always really hard mm. and I mean, intangible. <laughs> yeah, intangible. And we, I mean, I'm sure we can pluck out we can all pluck out a handful of things where we are we have a little bit more knowledge or expertise than the average person in that area, but yet we struggle. Can um, I ask you three a question? So um, what do you think the culture around grief is with young men now? So, I mean, mm. the culture in the UK is the young are really in the vanguard for speaking openly about mental health, about trying to break down the taboos around talking about grief. Um, and it is men and women, but it tends to be much more women than men. There are some men that really stand up, but mainly it's women. Um, and I think men suffer a lot because I still think there is a, a kind of expectation that you are kind of going to suffer in silence and not mm. cry and all the kind of um, assumptions, mm. caricatures of men. So what do you... What is the present? I, I I think that the three of us live in a bit of an echo chamber in terms of like if you were gonna if, mm. if we were gonna examine our social circles that we that the three of us are in and 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 the social circles that build off of those social circles I feel like I feel like there is a bit of a um, the, the in terms of like the way that the men in those circles relate mm. to tough times and, and grief or loss. Like, I feel like the uh, mental health, like all those things, I think that the people that we surround ourselves with are a bit, a bit of the outliers. I think that like in general, young men, at least here in Canada, I think, although it's like way different than it was when my dad was our age, I still think that there's a bit of, um, a bit of like work to be done, and and I'm the reason I ba the reason I think about that. I and this these two things aren't. I know that they aren't correlated, but I feel like there has to be some sort of relation in some way. But like, you know, the first thing that was brought up in this in this episode today with you, Julia, was that this is a subject <clears throat> that is the through line <clears throat> throughout our entire show, right? Mm -hmm. So over three hundred and fifty episodes we talk about this kind of shit all the time and our demographic, our, the num the, you know, the download numbers that we are receiving, it's like 90% women mm -hmm. that are listening. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, I, I think there's something to be said about that, right. That three young, pretty, you know, say you, it. I mean, you two are pretty good looking. I got to say three young, uh, you know, uh, Brian, I, I'm sure you would like to know hip, you know, look at, look at your hair. It's dyed. You look very cool. You know, three young, cool yeah. guys talking about, uh, talking about grief or, or illness or, or mental health struggle in general, but men aren't listening. Have you tried you know, getting like, to and, them? And How like, can you get to them? So I, I have a couple of things that That's I want to question. say that, add, uh, that I want to add to that though too. And, and like for sure my life changed for the better when we started this podcast, when we went even deeper into the conversations that I think that we were having with each other before this show too. But you know, it's once you start, start to build sort of like this brand around it and you, you start to more consciously think about it, then I think you, 
you you go even deeper into it. But like just the way that we would say I love you to each other as mm. as guys before this, I think was I think something that, you know, I wouldn't hear my dad say to his friends. Um, and and I do have a bit of a litmus test, I think, for... I'm the same generation the as your of, dad, probably, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I have a lit, litmus test for the landscape of, of how men are feeling, um, how comfortable they're feeling talking about mental health. And it's the locker room of my soccer team. Um you know, I I sort of think of these guys as like room talk. the the typical, and I hey, I don't want to use that term, but it's Brian. You, know, you just walk into those to those situations and go, guys. I so I just got out of therapy today earlier, and I just wanted to say, absolutely not at first, but <laughs> okay, okay. But okay, the interesting thing is that I've noticed <sighs> that. So we go for beers after the the game. We'll go and usually have a beer um, in the in the dressing room, and and um, some of the guys who knew that I hosted this podcast would start to like sit closer to me on the bench and then just start like, you know, sort of asking some questions like, Hey, I, you know, I heard this episode with this guy, you know, it's similar situation that I'm going through right now. And mm. we started to have these more like intimate individual nice. conversations, but then recently uh, a few times, and it happens probably one in every four times now after a game where somebody will say openly to everybody, like, Hey Brian, by the way, I heard that conversation with so and so. You know, I, I've been having this problem with my uh, partner at home, and you know, this is what I've been going through. And and there started to be this like conversation happening in in the group, but it's guys that I would have never thought mm. were going to be comfortable sort of talking about those That's things. Amazing. And 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 I don't think that I, I'm not saying that. I'm the catalyst for that. I'm what what I what I are. really think is happening is that there there are there's more than just sick boy going on and in, in helping to spread this message. There's amazing organizations like Movember. There's um, there's uh, like hundreds of organizations like um, uh, Man Man Talks. Is that another one? The yeah, Man Talks. Connor yeah. Beaton. Yeah. And so so there's uh, hundreds of organizations doing changing. this and. and it's changing, but but the but I want to say that the reason why I, I preface this point that I'm going to make with that is that I still don't feel that my unconscious bias towards having these conversations has shifted, and it comes down to the fact that when I was looking to speak to a therapist, I knew I wanted someone with feminine energy. It was like one of my criteria for who I wanted to speak to as a therapist. And it was because I felt more comfortable having that conversation about what I'm dealing with, with, um, a female person or feminine energy. It could have been, it could have been a guy too, but, but, um, yeah. And, and I feel like that's still a bit of an unconscious bias that's shaped by the landscape of how hard it is for men to talk about these things. But Brian, it speaks to, it speaks to how, when like, like kind of like what Jer said, we, it's, it would be easy if we just looked at what we do and the people that we immediately, uh, have relationships with and say, yeah, like men talking about mental health is, is, you know, a hundred percent better than it was when, before we started the podcast, because we are in that world, Mm -hmm. but it speaks to the further change, you know, if not only the beginning of of a of what hopefully will be a significant change over time, that you then see that going out into the world in the in the microcosm of a soccer team that 
you know, you, you know, it's not like you, it's not like those guys are the people that you see day in and day out and have these like really extensive relationships with. They're feeling like they can then bring that and then to you and then to the group. And then that's going to make them more likely to talk about that with somebody else when you have nothing to do with the situation. And I guess it grows from there. I guess I just, it speaks to that. And I, although I do see, I completely agree with Jared's assessment there that it is like, it's still, still is, you know, like all things needs so much work and has so much room to grow, but is definitely changing, um, in a positive direction because Mm -hmm. of, you know, what we do, what Movember does, what a lot of organizations do in, in having the conversation and showing and being the, you know, giving the permission to, uh, everyone, men and, but men in particular to have these more open conversations and not feel so stigmatized by being open and honest and vulnerable. Nice. What do you, Julia, what do you think? Like, do you think, do you see a shift in, in, you know, do you see a shift from like the time that you were, you were our age, like people who are younger, specifically men, um, you know, do you see a shift in the, in, in your, in your, in, in the work that you do with your patients or, or just like in general, like the, the overall sort of, um, sort of like social discourse that's happening around, around these topics? I mean, I think definitely, I mean, I think millennials, um, as a group are much more mental health aware and much more open and honest, Mm. um, I think women are much more vocal than men in life, generally, but, yeah. but also yeah. um, about mental health. But also, I think it is, you know, if you're in a big city like London, it will be very different if you're in a rural area in Scotland or, you know, so depending where you are in the UK, there's a massive difference between a 25-year-old man in, in Glasgow, not Glasgow, to, I don't know, Somerset to Greener. Okay, yeah. To London. But I mean, you know, if I look so all my I I've got four kids and they're all in their thirties, nearly forty, and they've all got partners and all of the so three daughters and a son and those four men, I mean obviously they're my children are influenced, so it's a bit like you're saying an echo chamber. But they're much more mm. open about their feelings than my generation. Far more. Far, far more. Mm. And express it. And now that's four more people yeah. that will then be influential on, on their children if they have They've children. They've all got and, kids, yeah. Um, they, they, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's yeah, a positive so it thing. Takes, it takes it. It's like a tree. And, I, and in a way to link it to where we started, that change is a natural process and it involves mm. grief, but it also requires hope. You know, hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. And I don't mm. think hope is just a feeling. I think hope is a belief and the, the confidence to believe in what you hope for, that you can make it happen. I think it's active as well as a feeling. And that people mm. like you and me, I think we have to believe and have hope that we can change things in our tiny ways within ourselves, but also that change happens. And, and also, if you look at health... The, the outcomes for people who, you, two people with the same illness, you'll know this, Jeremy, two people with the same diagnosis do not necessarily have the same outcomes. So, of course, there'll be a no. socioeconomic uh, 
element where you're 60% more likely to do badly if you come from a, an area of deprivation, but also your attitude to your diagnosis and your illness has a massive impact mm. on your outcome. So it's, of course you need medicine, but I mean, you've probably done 300 podcasts on this, but the support you get, the love and connection to others, the family system around you, but also how you believe, what you believe, how you look after yourself has a huge impact mm. mm-hmm. on your outcome. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's funny, you're... This, uh, I, I just finished watching the entire Star Wars saga like two nights ago. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, this idea of hope at like being this, you know, being something that is a new, not hope. just a, not just a thought, not just a, not just a feeling, but like a truly tangible thing that, uh, that that can make quite a difference, um, and that is resonating very hard, especially having finished that wonderful, wonderful mm. saga. But it's true. It's ta- It's. I mean, it's it's like grief. It's invisible, but tangible. The the mm. the impact of having hope is is <clears throat> massive. It change. It completely mm. turns your life around. Completely. Yeah. I'm, I, when you mentioned there that when you mentioned there about about like your environment and, and obviously there are things about your environment that you are there are things that you're about your environment that you cannot you cannot choose you cannot get away from um, and then there are some that are that have a little bit more w- more wiggle room like I think of uh, I think of the importance of and also the 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 challenge of surrounding yourself with the people that support you the people that have a positive impact on you that when you are going through something really tough that when you open up about it and you try to speak to somebody about it that they don't you know say that you are you know you're being weak or you're or you know you know don't 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 do that that's you'll be fine you'll be fine don't worry yeah yeah and 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 in saying that from the perspective of of you know personal experience when I when I when I was uh, 19 years old I was I was on a tr- like a trajectory trying to make my way as a professional hockey player yeah. and and then and then like shut it down and you know started practicing yoga and started getting into mindfulness and like really started to take an alternative route and and I had friends that just really just really thought that that was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> friends, yeah. yeah, exactly. Friends, friends in quotation. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, and, you it was were a, weed. and it was really hard. You were a sort of wet weed. Yeah. And it was really hard to recognize that 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 those friendships that I held very dearly were not helpful, weren't, weren't useful, and weren't going to serve me. Um, and and then ultimately, I guess you know, in in retrospect, it's like, well, I'm glad I made the decision to. The, for, to, to the friends that that could not find their way to be supportive of what I of what I felt was a really good decision and and was best for me, um, to uh, to just to just kind of sever those ties, and uh, and to replace them with people like Jeremy. I mean, Jeremy cropped up in my life that that same like within the next ten months, yeah. and we became best friends, and we met in a yoga circle. We did our training together, yeah. and and obviously, ten years later, here we are. Jer, uh, what day is it? 
We just passed our 10-year anniversary, by the way. Oh, <laughs> really? Happy 10-year, yeah. buddy. Yeah. Oh. That's a door What is the date? I don't, I don't remember this. I should write this down. Fuck, I feel like an asshole. Uh, I think I landed in Brazil and got to there at on January 19th or 20th. So it's the tw- 19th or 20th of January. Well, that's Do you guys so remember cute. the date of your friend anniversaries with me? I feel uh, uh Brian, jealous. I moved in, Definitely not. I moved in in <laughs> May, I was way May, too young. 2000, May 2000. Tay. I love that you. That is amazing. Great. Wow. Guys. <laughs> this is so I sweet. feel very warmed. <laughs> but it's like your brothers, isn't it? I mean, you've chosen your family and your friendships, the people that you can really be mm-hmm, open totally. and love. And you, I can see just looking at the three of you together, how strong that friendship is and how it allows you to be both. It allows you to be sad and not well or upset and but also to take the piss, laugh, and have a lot of fun, and that you could, and have a lot mm. of hope, and that you need to allow all of those things, and all of us need to allow those things. It, 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 is, it is such an important element to, to finding happiness and finding, um, you know, f- I mean, f- finding all the things that we're talking about here, like finding the ability to, c- to cultivate hope and to 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 accept change is, is to have a really solid support system around you and mm-hmm. and you know for for anyone who is out there who's listening to this and feeling like hey I don't fucking have that um you you can't you can. you know, it's, it like it's it, it it takes it it it's it's a it's a choice and it's something that you you can you can do like you can you can have really great people that lift you up around you and that we need to prioritize it you know that Yes, we have yeah. all these other measures of success, whether it's our job or our size of our house or the size of your dick even. But um, the thing that really... <laughs> I just wanted to make you laugh. <laughs> I knew I'd get you. You're the best. <laughs> uh, you didn't get it for a while. I was like, did she just say that? Having a big deck is a big deal in Canada too, you know? Like My dad my dad had a huge deck and uh, he was he was really proud of it. But uh, anyway, I'm yeah, glad so. to know that. That's given me a little image. I can work with that. Anyway, while I make myself look stupid, I laugh. Um, the metric that matters most is your relationships. Those are the ones yeah. that when you look back on your life that you mind about most, that, that will give you a happy and meaningful life is your relationships. And, and mm. we don't prioritise them enough. You three do. Mm-hmm. You model it fantastically. It's wonderful to see and in your partnerships. It's interesting that you, you say that because I've been, think, I've been having this thought uh, a lot lately over the past couple of weeks, I feel like I finally started to like cement a little bit more in my head, but I used to value for my own mental health value, exercise, um, nutrition, uh, and, and sleep. But the, the thing that is becoming more apparent to me is that the most valuable thing is <clears throat> human connection mm-hmm. and not just, not just in the sense of like really strong relationships, but just being really present with the people that you're in in front of, because we're all like sharing our own individual journeys with one another. And if you can take a moment to truly get to know somebody or have an interaction that's deeper than a superficial surface level one, then I don't think that there's anything more valuable than that. And and really like those interactions are are the root of what... <clears throat> Matters leads to friendship, uh, friendships, and powerful, meaningful relationships, and growth that will last, yeah, and happiness. Mm-hmm. There's no question.
I love you guys. I love you too, Julia. Yeah, I, do. <laughs> I love all y'all. Um, I, I want to, before we wrap here, I just want to come back to uh, this too shall pass. Um, stories of change, crisis, and hopeful beginnings. Julia, this is the book that, uh, that you, you're, you have just recently released. Um, not your first book. Um, and I got to say, when I, when I received the book in the mail, um, uh, the first thing I saw at the top was a, was a quote from Esther Perel, uh, who is, I, I just have to say, is my wife's like full on idol. She's a friend of mine. So as soon as, yeah. so as soon as I read this, I was like, oh Jesus, Bride is going to be so stoked that I got this book. Uh, but, um, it's, it's out now. Um, uh, just give us a little, give us a little rundown on, you know, I mean, I, 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 we've, we kind of touched on it here and there throughout, but, um. What can people expect when they they open this book, and and how 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 can this book be be beneficial to the people who who might need it? It's I'm a therapist, and it's case studies, stories of the different clients I've worked with, and in a way, just exactly like what you were saying as friendships. I think the most personal is the most universal. So I talk about the sessions I have with people going through different losses and changes in their life, whether it's love relationships, um, family relationships, work relationships, health relationships, or identity. So there are 18 case studies. And in each section, there's all the research and the reflections sort of backing up what the process shows. And I guess if there was people like takeaways, don't they? So this is 90,000 words, but in, in, in about four... <laughs> Give us the give us the uh, the ten yeah. points. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll write a listicle about the, it. Is I think it's a version of what I said at the beginning, which is that we we can't fight change, and the more we support ourselves in it, and intentionally find ways of supporting ourselves through our attitudes, our ways of being, and our connections to other people then we grow in life and we thrive through change. But when we resist it and block it, it um, we're less happy. And, we, and when change comes again, which it always does, you know, all the time, but certainly from research-wise every seven years, it hits us harder. Mm. If there's one message, it's what we said, um, is that relationships matter more. Love is strong medicine. And... I think we get that from COVID. I think we've learned as a, as a world kind of global people that what we miss most is that we're, we're social beings and that we need each other. And that we need to respect that in the way that we live our lives and the, how government organise our lives. Um, mm. And I hope that, that it, me, it means that there were things that will structurally change as well as a result. That isn't in my book. <laughs> uh, well, Julia, I got to say, this has been uh, just an absolute treat to sit down and to talk to you and to uh, kind of get a bit of insight into the work that you do. Uh, I, I am going to uh, very confidently speak on behalf of everyone on this one uh, by saying we really appreciate the time that you've taken today. And this has been really it's fun. It's been really Thank fun. You so much. Thank Absolutely. you. Thanks. Real pleasure. Feeling very hopeful. Good. Yes, hope, hope. 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 The force. Let it be with you. Yes. <laughs> oh. Wow. What a what a 
What a just, amazing human being. Yeah, yeah, what a just special human, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, again, that was Julia Samuel. And I uh, cannot recommend this book enough. This too shall pass. Uh, it is out now. And, <clears throat> you know, I know that... I know that we can see each other when we record this, and, and I've, I, I held the book up a couple times uh, on our little Squadcast call, but it's a beautiful, the, the cover is beautiful. It's a, a really nice hardcover book. So mm-hmm. if you're one of those people who judges a book by its cover, and all you're doing, you're just a cover, you're just a cover whore, like, my, like myself, I'm a headline whore and a cover whore. Uh, if you want a nice book that looks great too on your mm. bookshelf, <laughs> Reads great, looks good. Go get this one, uh, Julia Samuel. What a what a treat. Um, we are we're, we're really really stoked uh, that you got to sit in on that conversation with us. Um, and listen, folks, if you like that, guess what? There's more coming. We've got an episode this coming Friday. We've got more episodes every Monday and Fridays after that. So uh, you can always listen to the show anywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the CBC Listen app. So do that. And if you have any fan mail, any stories that you want to send us and have them read on the show, send them to letters at sickboypodcast.com. And in particular, in light of today's conversation, if you have any stories of grief, grief that you're in, grief that you've overcome, grief that you don't know how to overcome, mm. and this may be this episode helped you, send that to us, letters at sickboypodcast.com. And if you want to be a guest on our show, you can go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact, fill out the application, and hopefully you'll be one of our incredible guests that we get to uh, speak to every week. And guys, I feel like it would be really appropriate uh, at this point during the show to just tell you guys who I love. Um, I love you, Taylor McGilvery, as one of the co-hosts and co-producers of this show. I love, I love Jeremy Saunders, who's also co-host and co-producer of the show. I love Lauren Sankey, who's a co-producer of the show. I love Jeff Lonis, who's a manager of the show. I love Take Part, who does the theme music for these Monday episodes. I love Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan, who does the sound design. I love Rich O'Coin, who does the Friday theme music, even though it's not part of this episode. And I love Jeremy, who edits those episodes. And I love my girlfriend, Madison McKenzie. I love my girlfriend. She's kind of my wife, Kyle. Uh, I love, I love, uh, I love both of your girlfriends, and I love my wife, and I love my girlfriend. I love, them, I love all the girls. I love my, I, I love my brother so, too. I love, I love my mom. Hey guys, I love my mom. My mom just turned sixty. And retired yesterday. Oh, Dude. whoa, that's sweet. Congrats that's to her. That's pretty fantastic. That's awesome. Fucking huge, eh? So yeah. congrats, Mom. I love you. And uh, hey, you know what? If hey. you're listening right now, wherever you are, you little silver we love fox. You Maxine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, hey, whoa. I love hey. you. Love Watch you, Maxine. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Support. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.